You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free City Church. Uh, my name is Casey, and if you're with us for the very first time, um, you may be in someone's living room, you may be in your own living room, but we're so glad that you're here, and I pray this finds you encouraged. Um, and many of our people uh, across uh, Lawrence and in Topeka are in home churches. We are now Free City House Church, and uh, they're gathering together on Sunday to walk through liturgy with one another, uh, to participate in worship on a much smaller scale, and then together under video preaching. And so this is what we call stage two. Uh, so this is stage two of our re-entry plan. And if you're not in um, a house church, please reach out to us. We would love to connect you. We have room for you. But we're about to approach uh, and making plans to approach stage three of re-entry. And that is stepping toward corporate worship. And we don't have an exact date on that. We're hoping to do that certainly in July. Uh, but currently right now, we are trying to work with the school to see if that's going to be a viable option for us, if it's viable for them. Uh, and we're also in communication with other churches. And uh, if we go to other churches, that's probably going to move us to, to Sunday night, uh, which is where we started for the summer. And we, will, we promise to keep you um, in the loop on all of those things as we find out details and as we try to make the best decisions in moving forward. And so be praying for us and be there. And then also, like, we are still in week two of three weeks where we're talking about this famous passage in Ephesians 5. This, this famous passage of Ephesians 5, where Paul takes a lot of time to address the topic of how the gospel influences and shapes our marriage. And so more than anything else he talks about, later he's going to talk about you know, the parent-child relationship and the worker-boss relationship. And then he even goes in to talk about like our relationship uh, with darkness, that we have the supremacy of Christ and the power of Christ. But he spends so much time here talking about marriage. And so we decided to give like three weeks to this topic, and we are on week two. And like, I know when we talk about marriage, this hits us all in very different places. But like first, like today is Father's Day. Like we want to acknowledge that like Father's Day hits us in so many different places. For some of us, the wounds of fatherless or dad wasn't around or dad was there but not engaged. The wounds that we might care because our fathers are deep. You know, for, for some of us, like, they're there. And I just want to encourage you that if that finds you, you have a heavenly father who says this. At the end of the time, he's promised to wipe away every tear from your eye. There is no suffering that he will not address and that he will not absorb with his loving hands. But also when we talk about fathers, we know that God is for all of us all imperfect fathers. Like we all fall short in some ways and sometimes striving out of faith, like our faith is imperfect in what we try. And I just want you to hear this. You are not alone in striving to be a dad and your imperfect faith. The Bible says you just need a little bit of faith. And so keep striving. Walk in repentance when you do something wrong. But also just remember this. 
that before the intertestament period, before Jesus came, the last words of the Old Testament, Malachi was prophesying about what the kingdom of God would do, what it would be like. And he started to talk about the ministry of John the Baptist ushering in the kingdom of God. And he says this, this is what it's going to be about. He's going to come and he's going to turn the heart of the fathers back to the children and their children back to the heart of the father. God has come to redeem fatherhood. And so be encouraged. And I know there's others of you right now that are asking just this question. Where's my latte? The mom's got lattes. Where, where are my, where's my latte? And we, we didn't get you a latte. But I hear that you might get a free flashlight at Harbor Freight with certain purchases. So enjoy that. But when we look at this, it's not just Father's Day that we want to talk about. We also want to talk about how a text like this, a text on marriage, hits all of us in different places. Like, like in talking about a marriage again this week, I, I want to address that we have people all over the place. Like, and so I also want to address, like, this message is a little bit more geared to, to our, our single adults. Like our adults are saying, what do I do now if I'm not married? And so in describing some things in this text, it's going to give us a lot of movement of what should I be looking for? What is marriage actually all about? Who is the kind of person I should marry? And listen, I, starting two college ministries, working with youth for a long time, planning a church. You know, we planted a church in a college town. Like, we've always had lots of singles around. And I know you hear crazy things, like dumb things sometimes from married people. Like, I know grandmas are going to say things like, don't they have any nice boys or girls at your church? And you're just like, damn, grandma fresh out. I mean, they were non-essential, and so maybe 2021. I mean, I know we hear things like that. I know that people in your city group have asked you to babysit the last minute, assuming you have absolutely nothing going on. I know that well-meaning people have prayed for you, and out of nowhere they pray that you find a spouse, and that's not even what you were praying about. And sometimes that can make you feel less. Like I know that. I know that even this, like even the concept, when, when you describe, our culture describes a single person, they describe them by what they don't have. They say they are unmarried. You don't ever describe a married person as unsingle. And so there's a sense where you can feel a little bit on the outside. Like I was actually disheartened. Like I, I, I Googled this. List of dumb things married people say to single people. I've got like thousands of hits of dumb things that married people say to single people, well-meaning things. But then I Google this. What are dumb things single people say to married people? There are no lists out there. Like, there's no list that describes that, but not exactly that, but I made my own list of what do sometimes people say to parents who have small kids that are just kind of dumb. Like, for instance, they might say, how's potty training going? I read it can be done in like three days. You, you don't want to say that. Or, or like something like this, new babies are awesome. How's sleeping? Or maybe this, are you glad that you bought that puppy for your kids? It's so easy for me to think of some things on that list because I just got out of that season of really young kids. It was my life. And when you find yourself living in a place, it's easy to detect things that apply to you. And we just need grace. We just need grace. 
You know, when, when it comes to talking about marriage, I know this hits us all over. Some of us love to talk about marriage. Like some married people love to talk about it. It's easy for us to say like marriage is the best part of me. It brings up so many stories that brings laughter and hope. Some love to talk about marriage. Some single people lo love to talk marriage. Like they love to talk about it because they want to learn about it. They're hopeful for the future. They hope that girl sitting across the living room in their free city house church is thinking about them the way that they're thinking about them and writing their name in the margins. They're hopeful. In moments during this, they might go, mm, and then just look to see if they're being looked at. They're hopeful. Some don't love to talk about it. Like it has a way of making us feel just other. Like some of us experienced marriage was the marriage of our parents that was just hurtful or ended. Or, or it was like the train wreck that just never stopped. Or, or some of us have a previous marriage that could be described in all, all the same ways. And that's not fun to talk about. Or, or some of us has invested much into a relationship and it went away. Or some are just waiting. Like they're just waiting. And it feels like they've been waiting a long time. And this is just not how they thought their life would look. Or some of us are finally at a good place where they're looking at relationships. And they may not be in one, but they're hopeful for what God has. And they're trusting God where they are. And they're afraid if we talk about it, I may not be in a place of contentment anymore. This hits us in so many different places. You know, the New Testament is unlike any book in antiquity that actually elevates the idea of singleness and even says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it is a good thing. This book itself, what we're studying, Ephesians, was written by a single Christian. And yet he says, we need to talk about this. We, we need to talk about how the gospel changes all these areas in our life. And so here we are because it's next and it's where we find ourselves instructing from the whole truth of the gospel, the whole truth of the scriptures. We want you to know, I know this might hit us in different places. But I think it's really important. And so as we're looking at this, we're going to continue to work with Ephesians 5 and really verse 21 through 33 over the next couple of weeks. And I pray that God uses this both to bring conviction and encouragement wherever you are. Like last week, we talked about what marriage is. And we talked a lot of things around about what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant that is a promise of future love. It's not just saying, I love you. It's saying, I promise to love you no matter what tomorrow may bring. That's why we say, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, it's saying, I promise to love you. But today, I want to talk more about the purpose of marriage. And the Bible describes, there's a lot of purposes of marriage, but the Bible actually, in the very beginning, gives us one purpose of marriage that's often overlooked. And this text is built on the, the bedrock of that text. And so when we look at this, we're going to focus really on, on two questions. Don't get excited. doesn't mean it's going to be fast. Two questions. The, the first question is, why God made marriage? And there's going to be a one-word answer. 
why God made marriage. And then the second is, what should I look for in marriage? Like, what should, if, if, if God made marriage for a specific reason, what should I be looking for? And so the first question, what, why did God make marriage? And the answer is companionship. And so look at, look at this with me. In verse 31, Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And he quotes specifically in verse 31 of Ephesians 5. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, before we get into the, the, the context of what he's quoting from, I just want to say... This is shocking to us in a different way than it was shocking to his audience in the first century, or really any century before that. This shocks us differently than it shocked them. This shocks us because of the way it talks about marriage in permanency. Now, we talked about a little bit of the covenant side. This shocks us because of the permanent nature of marriage. It says it's one flesh or, or one organism. And our culture wants to see marriage as important, but not as binding like this. Like this is shocking to our culture because it sees marriage in a different avenue. It sees marriage as a vehicle to make us happy. And when that vehicle doesn't deliver anymore, our culture wants to say, find a new vehicle. It's shocking to us because our priority is individualism and our individualism is threatened by the permanency of marriage. Like this permanency scares us because oftentimes when we look at marriage, we think of something that's going to accentuate me. That's going to make me better, a better me. That's going to please me. It's going to make me happy. And when it no longer delivers like that, we think it's failed us and we want to move on. But the analogy of one flesh or one organism is not the analogy we want. We're prone to think of marriage in the analogy of a house. And so if it falls into shambles, you get out and you go to the next one. Or we want to think of marriage in, in the idea of like a business partnership. So if it's no longer profitable for me, I go find a new partnership. But the one flesh analogy is more like the relationship with our legs. Like it's, there are dangerous circumstances that you would allow to separate, but they're extreme. Last weekend, we went to visit family and my sister-in-law, well... My wife's cousin's wife, however she's related to me, very, very distant. She's had multiple knee surgeries, and they've all kind of failed. And so now she's talking with the doctor about her knee surgery. She's 38 years old, and the last surgery they think they can do is a full knee replacement. After that surgery, there's no other surgeries but amputation. 38 years old, and she's looking at the possibility of living without a leg, having a titanium knee where they really don't know how long it's going to last. Like she's young for that kind of thing. And so she is working very hard to keep her leg. Like she is in a lot of pain, but she's enduring pain for the possibility to keep her leg. She is, it's costly. Surgery after surgery, a knee replacement, it's costly, but there's like no cost too great to try to keep her leg. We are praying desperately to avoid amputation, and that's the feeling that we're supposed to get when we talk about the permanency of marriage. It might have great cost. 
It's something that we pray about desperately. It might even have to endure some pain. Is there ever a reason to separate? Absolutely. Because it takes two people to reconcile. But we're offended or threatened by the permanency in which this talks about. Paul's audience wouldn't have been offended or threatened by that. Paul's audience would have been shocked by the priority of marriage above all other relationships. Like when he quotes Genesis 2.24, he says this, and so back at the beginning, and then here he says that you're to leave your father and your mother to be united to your husband or your wife. You forsake one relationship. It is no longer as important, still important, but now it is not as important as the relationship with your spouse. It doesn't mean that you no longer prioritize the relationship with your mom and dad. It means that your marriage has to come first. (laughs) In this culture, a traditional pro-family, above all other things, society, this was shocking. This was shocking. Like, it would have shocked them differently than it would have shocked us. Like, they thought about family differently in some ways. If you're in the Bible reading plan, you just read or you're reading Song of Solomon. How you doing? And so you're reading Song of Solomon, and you read Song of Solomon chapter 3. And what's happening is she's having like this nightmare that she can't find Solomon. She can't find the one she loves, the guy she wants to marry. And she is desperate to find him. And when she finds him, it says this, I held him. And I would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Like, that's kind of weird to us. Like, the idea of, like, a home birth there, but, like, my lover, I want to take him home there. And then look at this. Like, we see this. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And so this is saying, like, she thought she lost him. She was desperately in love with him. And the idea of a honeymoon was, I'll just go home to my mom's room. Like, the the situation of family, the way they thought about it, that division of leaving your father and mother to be united to a relationship that now takes priority would have shocked them. It shocks us in different ways. You see, the Bible is telling us the priority of the person you're supposed to marry above all other human relationships. It's a unique relationship, and it's going to say it's like a friendship. A special, unique friendship. Like we have to stop and if we're looking at Genesis 2.24 and it says we have to leave this kind of relationship, make it less important, although it's still important, to make the marriage relationship more important, it tells us why if we back up to verse 18. And so really simple, why did God create marriage? He answers it. And so what we have here is God is creating everything. And after he creates everything, he says, this is good. He creates the heaven and the earth. He says, it's good. He creates the land masses, the mountains. He creates all the waters and all, everything that lives in the waters and everything on the earth. And he says, it's good. It's good. It's good. He creates mankind. He says, it's very good. But then he looks at Adam. He says, something's not good. 
And so look at what it says. In verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Like just, just think about that for a second. Adam is living in paradise. It's like the ultimate Airbnb existence. He's living in paradise. Adam it has a very satisfying career. Like, like he's working for God. It's the, it's the very first startup business. Like Adam is living in paradise. He has a challenging, important career that, that is satisfying. He has an incredible quiet time with God, incredible spiritual relationship. Like he meets with God in paradise, the, the fantastic Airbnb existence in the startup community. And he talks about life with God daily. And God looks at him and says, but there's something about his existence that's not what it's supposed to be. And so he makes marriage as companionship. Now, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to get to the place where it says you have to be married to be like completed. It's not saying that. It's saying that even though we have an incredible vertical relationship with God, God created us in His image, the triune God, who has a perfect relationship within itself, a perfect community that lacked nothing. It didn't, God didn't need to make us because He lacked something. God opened up himself to include us in something beautiful. And so he made us with needs of horizontal relationships. And the word that he uses right here, it, it, it's easier. Like in, in response to this horizontal need, God created what Genesis 2.18 calls an easier. The word is translated helper fit for him. Something that just fits him perfect. Something in a relationship need that fits. And so God, in his humility, created us to need also horizontal relationships. And what this happens, what happens with this is then the Bible speaks about the priority of human relationships. And in, in a way that's kind of really odd to antiquity. The Bible speaks about the priority of certainly, like, mother-father relationships, or certainly spouse relationships is what we're talking about here. The Bible also speaks in a way that no other ancient uh, document really talks about, the importance of friendship. You know, later on, we actually see this, in, speaking of Song of Solomon, how you doing? In Song of Solomon 5.16, it says this, it says, This is my beloved, and this is my friend. And so all through, we see this intertwining of like, what is the right kind of spouse you should marry? It's a certain kind of friend that you want. Lover, friend, like this best friend in the opposite sex is the kind of person I should marry. Like Michael Bolton was right. Like how can we be lovers if we can't be friends? If your marriage is struggling, have you worked on the friendship of your marriage? Or, or, or if you want to be married, are you looking for a good friend first? Like the danger of our culture is we prioritize romance and sex above friendship in thinking about the person to date. We focus on things like status or finance or physical appearance instead of focusing on who could be the best friend 
And so when we look at this, we need to realize attraction is important. But that's not what Genesis 2 says. It doesn't say that God brought him the most beautiful specimen he could ever see. It says God brought him a best friend suitable relationship. And he focuses on that horizontal relationship. We need friends. You know, the danger is a lot of times we impose upon the grace of God when we're looking for someone to marry. And so we look at people in the idea of like status. How successful are they? Or how connected are they? Or we look in the idea of like a physical appearance. And then we just hope that down the road we might have a meaningful relationship, like a meaningful friendship that's fulfilling. We hope upon it. And like, I, I do a lot of weddings. Like, Ethan's done all the pandemic elopements, but I do a lot of weddings. And, and like, the wedding situation, like, people look great. People work out to have honeymoon abs. People even tan, and when you're tan, you look more athletic. People have, like, teams of people, like, making them look good. Like, all the bridesmaids get involved in getting the bride in the dress. I don't know what that takes, but all of them are somewhat involved. Like, every guy looks better in a suit or tux, and you stand there in front, and there is an appearance of, of beauty, but those things have enemies, like appearances has the enemy of radiation is working against you. Gravity is working against you. A slowing metabolism is working against you. And so when the Bible talks about marriage as friendship, it's saying this, you need to look to things that appreciate with time because all these other things in this fallen world are working against you. And you might say, but, but maybe status or, or finances or success is more stable. If anything has the corona pandemic showed that these things can change really, really fast? When we're looking at the idea of who to marry, do you think of the idea of like best friend? You see, like best friend, you can enjoy and grow your entire life. You can wrinkle early with laugh lines, and you can always discover new things by diving deeper. And when age or disease takes hobbies and abilities, you can still dive deeply into one another's souls. Like the very first question, why did God make marriage? It was answered in the very first few pages for companionship. It goes on to build this special kind of friendship that we should be looking for. And so the first question, why? We'd say companionship. The next question we want to ask is, what should marriage look like? And like to summarize, we're going we're gonna to go to the Proverbs just to talk about what friendship looks like. But like to summarize, I would just say this. It looks like a friend who always lets you in and refuses to let you go. That kind of friendship. A friend who's always going to let you in. Maybe I've been hurt, but I'm going to let you in, and I'm never going to let you go. I am consistent. And so look at these Proverbs with me, and let's just pull out some ideas. And so the first thing I want to say is a friend who is faithfully there faithfully there. Proverbs 17, 17, also just in our Bible reading plan. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That, that doesn't mean that a brother is born to fight. When you are young, if you have a brother or siblings, you will fight. 
It means that if you have good family, you can count on them to show up at a time of adversity, at a difficult time. But you never know. They might be showing up because they feel like they have to. But a friend who shows up doesn't have to. They choose to show up. And so it says friendship, like when we look for friendship, we're looking for a certain type of faithfulness, someone who's there. There are friends who are there when times are good, but when times get difficult, they seem to vanish. The friend who is there when times get bad, that's a special kind of friend. So, so, I mean, the first thing is just this, a friend who is faithfully there. The second there is, is this, a friend who knows you and is careful with you. Like, there's a couple things I want to say about this. Like, look at Proverbs 27, verse 14. It says, Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. And so one way to do this is a friend is careful because they know you. Like, some people are morning people. They, they, They wake up like vampires, just kind of like ready for the day, ready for the next victim. They wake up full of life. And like, we, I just, can you not be you until later in the morning? But some people are morning people. Other people kind of wake up like zombies, kind of not fully aware of what's going on, bumping into everything. And so this says, if you wake up with a cheeriness, you won't go to your friend who is not a morning person and say, welcome to the day. Because you know that they're not going to take it that way. Like you're considerate. Or early in marriage, um, I woke up to this crunching noise. And I look up and Kenzie is sitting cross-legged on the bed, eating a bowl of cereal, just looking at me. And the first thing she said was like, I love you and I just missed you. And that is like so incredibly sweet. It didn't feel sweet in that moment. And since then, she doesn't do that because she knows me and she's careful. See, a real friend will know where your wounds are, and when they have to walk in them, they'll walk carefully. But they won't just walk carefully. And the reason they walk carefully is because they're with you in adversity, so they know they'll have to share your pain. In in Proverbs 25, verse 20, it says, Whoever sings songs, that means like songs of joy, to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. That means exposes you to harm. And like vinegar on soda, soda, vinegar and soda make a violent reaction. A friend is careful when they walk in wounded areas with you because they know you and they're going to walk you through it. They don't want to just wound. And so when we talk about what would this friendship spouse look like, two things that stand out right away, a friend who's faithfully there even in the hard times, a friend who knows you and is careful with you. And then the third thing I want to focus on, a friend who refuses to allow your ruin. A friend who refuses to, to allow your wound. They're faithfully with you. They don't want to walk violently with you, but they will not let you destroy yourself. Like just three Proverbs that really stand out. Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6. It says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. 
open rebuke than hidden love. When it says hidden love, it means self-love. Better is a rebuke than me loving myself. And then it says, it says this, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse or plenty are the kisses of an enemy. And so this talks about two different things. It says there are friendly wounds and there are wounding kisses. Friendly wounds are hurting words that need to be said to bring life. Wounding kisses are just saying, everything is fine. Don't worry about it. Even if I see darkness coming, because I don't want to get into it. You know, even to put a picture on it, it's important to think that Jesus, the author of life, was betrayed by Judas with a a kiss. And sometimes we betray people we love with kisses, and we steal the life from them. And what's necessary is wounding words. See, like a friend refuses to allow your ruin because a friend warns with painful truths, but they don't leave after they do the truth. They stay there. Like you can't tell your friend, like if you can't tell someone hard truth, it's not because you love them too much. It's because you love you too much. It's going to be uncomfortable. So what kind of friendship do we need? We need friends that are willing to wound us when we need healing. But there's more. Proverbs 27, verse 17, just later in the chapter, it says this. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. This kind of friendship is one that presses you to bring out the best of you. Like the best friends are friends who will push upon you to bring something out in you. You see, to sharpen iron, you need something at least as hard as iron to sharpen it. And so when you take two iron blades and you rub them, you cause friction and you move off excess area to bring a sharp edge to make it useful. And that's what great friends do. They're not afraid to press in when they see a jagged edge that doesn't belong. They press in with wounding words. They press in with presence to say, I won't allow you to go to harm. I won't allow you not to be ready. I won't allow you to walk in this anymore. It's a friend who refuses to allow your ruin. And both of these things, all of these things are saying this, great marriages are made of the best friends who value your life enough to be there when it's hard, to say hard things when we need life, and to press against you to refuse to allow your ruin. And one more thing I want to say about refusing to allow someone's ruin. In Proverbs 27 verse 9, it says this, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Like this is saying that a good friend is someone who gives advice toward life. They actually will weigh in upon your life to say, listen, I don't want you to ruin your life. I I think you need to go in this direction. And I'm going to be with you even if that gets hard. Like that's what good friends do. You know, I mean, it's, it's the, the feeling you get when you, you smell like fresh baked cookies and good coffee. And if you're not into caffeine or, or gluten, I don't have an analogy for you. But it's that feeling that just the countenance of their advice is uplifting in itself. 
you know it can be trusted. And even if their advice is kind of misses the mark, you just have a sense because they've been faithful to you in highs and lows and because they've been able to use words that wound and you know that's for your life. Like sometimes if they get it wrong, there's, 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 there's tolerance for it because you know they're for you. See, great marriages are made of best friends who will push you to flourishing light. This is telling us to marry someone who is faithfully there. This is telling us to marry the kind of friend who is not afraid to say hard truths, the kind of friend who's not going to abandon you when it's difficult or is not going to just wound you because they know they're going to have to walk you out. This is telling us to marry the kind of friend who's not going to pass on a moment to press against you, to change you. This is telling us to marry the kind of friend who will say hard advice, but it will be like a sweet aroma in your life. This is, this is not how we think about marriage. Or it's not initially. Like, like when, when you're trying to date, it's, you don't always, it's not common that we prioritize first just like a friend of the opposite gender that we're like, man, they are just like my best friend. They hear my sorrows. They're with me when it's hard. They always give good advice. They don't want to just hurt me. It's not really how we think about it in our culture. See, in light of Genesis 2 that says that God, you know, when, when Adam, we said something was lacking, he made a companion and so gave him a friend. And in light of all the Proverbs that we just read that talk about the power of friendship and what friendship is supposed to look like, I want us to read Ephesians 5, 25 through 30 in light of that. And listen to this. It says, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A best friend gladly sacrifices for the benefit of their friend. How much more will a best friend spouse? Look at verse 26. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. A best friend advises and pushes toward life and beauty. They refuse to allow your ruin, and they will wound you to heal you. How much more will a best friend spouse? Or look at verse 28, it goes on, it says, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This says a best friend will know you like they know themselves, and they won't just wound you because they'd be hurting themselves to do so, but they will press you in a way that hurts if it sharpens you, makes you beautiful before God, how much more of a best friend spouse? In Genesis 2, the textual bedrock of Ephesians 5, when God brought Adam his spouse, he didn't just bring him a lover, he brought him a friend. Adam found a friend that he didn't even know he needed yet. But as soon as he found that friend, like if you look in Genesis 2, he writes poetry 
He goes into bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like he goes into some sort of love novel. And it tells us something about this companionship that we should be looking for if we're looking to be married. It says that we should first be looking for a friend. Like, do you know how radical this was in the first century and before? Like, this was a society that, that, that viewed women more like property in marriage or like a way to up your family than anything else. And yet the Bible stands out and describes this relationship as the best friend you can have. It would have stood out really different. Or, or think about this. Like, do you know how radical this is to our society that prior, prioritized romance and sex and individual fulfillment. Like our society is drunk on the idea of sex, appearance, and fulfillment. Like when you're in the line checking out the grocery store and you look at the magazines, you see headlines like this, who is sleeping with who? You don't see headlines like who is best friends with who? And yet when the Bible talks about what should this person look like? It says, you should look like a friend. Someone who knows you. Someone who's faithful in good times and hard times. Someone who's not just going to wound you because they have to walk it out through you. They're there. Someone who has a glimpse of what God is doing in your life. And it said, just like Philippians 1, 6, that God says he will be faithful to finish what he started in your life. They're saying, I want to partner with that idea. And I want to see all that God's going to do in your life. After I graduated from college, my family took an Alaskan cruise. And so my, my sisters, I have two older sisters, they both were newly married. And, um, and so they didn't have kids and they were just married. And so it was like you know, the romance voyage for them. I, I, was, I was dating Kinsey, I was single. And so my parents and my, my sisters actually got rooms right beside each other with balconies that overlooked the water right beside each other. But they said, hey, you're not married. So they gave me like a room in the belly of the ship by the cistern. Like I had a TV that showed me what it looked like outside, if it was day or night, but we were going to Alaska in the summer, so it was always day. But like I was treated like differently on that. As we were on our, our cruise, we were nearing the place where Mount Denali is. And we were taking an excursion to go see Mount Denali. And one of our guys, they said, hey, I want to prepare you. Mount Denali is usually clever, covered by clouds. And so you may not get to see everything, but man, we were hopeful. And that morning we got up and Mount Denali was definitely covered by crowds. But as the afternoon unfolded, the clouds melted away and we were sitting there looking at the majesty of this mountain. And I, our guide, I remember our guide saying, hey, this is rare. Not everyone gets to see this. Usually there's a lot of cloud cover and starts to point out different things on the mountainscape. And then it wasn't too long. The clouds started to move back in and suddenly you couldn't see the top of the mountain any longer. But when I looked at the clouds, I knew what was behind because I had a glimpse of it for a moment. I knew the beauty that was masked. When the Bible talks about your spouse, the person you want to marry should be like your best friend. 
It's like there's a moment of clarity that God gives you a vision of what He's doing. Like the, the clouds of the insecurities just part. The, the, the clouds of the fears and the bad habits or, or the clouds of all of those things that can plague us, it just parts for a second. And you just get a little bit of an idea of what God's doing. And see, a Christian spouse, a best friend Christian spouse says, I'm dedicated to that and more. And even when the clouds come back and kind of conceal it, see, a best friend spouse is faithful in the clear times and the cloudy times. A best friend spouse, like, they know you, so they're careful. But this best friend spouse is someone who refuses to allow the cloud cover to stay. They're on board of Philippians 1.20. They're on board to work with God, to take God's side against you, prayerfully hoping that you might take God's side against you. Why did God create marriage? It says companionship. What kind of companion should we look for? It says a special kind of friendship. You know, so when Jesus described himself to the disciples, like John 15, he says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Because he includes them in real ways. And then here in Ephesians 5, it says, the marriage relationship, what is God like? He's like a faithful spouse who is patient and works and works and is self-sacrificial and works and works and is never going away, is always faithful. Jesus comes and he shows himself to be this kind of faithful, best friend, spouse who won't give up. And we see it. We get to see it. When Jesus is on the cross and he's looking down, he doesn't look down and see like lovely people. He looks down. He doesn't see lovely people who are going to accentuate his life or better position him in success. He saw us. He looks down and he sees those whose sins were driving him to the cross. He looks down and he doesn't see us in all our loveliness. He sees us in all our need, but he knows that when his love is bestowed upon us, it will, Philippians 1.6, it will make us lovely. And so it says in Hebrews that for the joy, he journeyed to the cross. Like we see this relationship. Jesus is like the ultimate best friend spouse who always lets us in and refuses to let us go. He is committed to your transformation process. Are you in that relationship? Like, it's a moment that I got to say, like, I'm not seeing Jesus here as an example. I'm seeing Jesus as a Savior. Do I know God like that? When Jesus points out my flaws or insecurities or fears, do I listen and follow or do I ignore and excuse? The change that marriage can bring can hurt. The change that salvation can bring can hurt. You see, we can approach marriage 
in the same way that we approach salvation in the wrong way. See, we can come to Jesus and say, hey, I just have to be happy. We can step into marriage, I just have to be happy. But the secret of the universe is happiness always lies on the far side of holiness. Happiness always lies on the far side of holiness. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or goddess. That's the way you talk if you're in charge of mythology. And so, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest into a god or goddess, a, da- a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in part very painful but that is what we are in for nothing less if you're married is your marriage like that is this if you're not married is this how you think about marriage do do you need change the way you look at your spouse or invest in the friendship in your marriage are you looking for a best friend to marry or are you walking into every room and counting two-thirds of that room off because they don't make certain appearance levels you might have just walked pushed by the best friend you could ever have made And most importantly, do you know Jesus like this? Someone who's so committed to changing you, he went to the cross. Not Jesus' example. Jesus as Savior. Pray with me. Jesus, Lord, we all fall short of this. But Lord, I pray that as we look at marriage, whether we're married or single, this would transform the way we think about it. And Lord, we would see the beautiful blessing of friendship. And Lord, for those of us who who are single, that doesn't mean we're excluded from friendship. All those verses in Proverbs were about friendship. But taking them in application to how we see a spouse is a powerful thing, Lord. Reshape the way we think. Lord, we need to be healed. We need to trust you. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Free City Church, I love you and I'll see you soon.